We're turning again tonight to Revelation chapter 1, and we have here uh, the Apostle John, uh, the last remaining uh, of the uh, original um, disciples. Uh, he was in his late 80s, early 90s. Uh, the others had died or been martyred, and John, uh, he was uh, a pastor in Ephesus but he had been exiled under uh, the Romans uh, to the island of Patmos. And uh, even though uh, he is not able to meet as we are uh, with his brothers and sisters and to be involved in the ministry of the word, he uh, is able to thrive in his isolation. And that's why we're looking at this passage. Uh, how can we not just survive uh, this time as Christians, but how uh, can we come out of it uh, even better uh, than uh, we started? And John uh, ha has an experience of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's what we've started looking at. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week. And may we know what it is to uh, be in the Spirit. And what happens when a person uh, is touched uh, by the Holy Spirit is uh, Jesus Christ uh, becomes more real. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, uh, doesn't draw attention to himself. He puts all the spotlights on the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what we've started looking at. And John. Uh, gives these uh, wonderful uh, characteristics of the risen Saviour. So if we can take our Bibles and uh, pick up the accounts from verse 12, verse 12 in the Revelation, Revelation 1 and the 12th verse. And then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. Now we've got about seven characteristics here, and we have divided them into three categories. Uh, John's readers would have been very familiar with the Old Testament and the Messiah uh, that the Old Testament prophesied uh, was uh, combining the three offices uh, that uh, were done separately uh, in the Old Dispensation. Can you remember uh, from last week what they were? Uh, the office of king to rule over the people the office of prophets to teach the people and the office of priest 
to sacrifice and intercede for the people. So we looked last time uh, at Christ uh, in his office as king in this vision, and it's so encouraging in these days of confusion and uh, great uh, polarization uh, that we have one who is still on the throne. Uh, we need not lose hearts. Uh, our God reigns, and we mustn't just believe that in our heads, but it must sink deep into our hearts so that we live in the light of it. That would have given strength to John, no end, as he struggled on this rocky island of Patmos. But tonight we're going to uh, look at the next two of the offices. So let's first uh, deal with Jesus Christ as priest. Uh, what ref uh, in the account refers to his priesthood? Uh, well, I don't know if you noticed, in the reading in Leviticus 16, uh, where we had an account of uh, the high priest uh, going into uh, the innermost sanctum, the holiest of all, on one day of the year, the Day of Atonements, uh, it was said that he wore uh, a certain item. And if you look uh, in Revelation 1 at verse 13, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet. Now that's the same item of clothing that the high priest wore on the Day of Atonement, the linen priestly garments. But then the significant item uh, is the golden sash. It was golden sash in Leviticus 16. It is golden band here. In the authorized version, it's golden girdle. Uh, some refer to it as a golden belt. It could have been tied around the waist, or it could have been worn more uh, as a sash. Uh, so uh, th this is Jesus Christ now as our high priest. Now, sometimes uh, one or two uh, people, uh, they refer to me as priest. And I say, no, 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 I am not a priest. I am not here to represent you before God. We don't need priests anymore. In one sense, we are all priests now as believers, offering sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving to our God. But in another sense, there are no more priests because there is only one priest and he has offered the one and only sacrifice that was sufficient. Uh, let me read uh, what one commentator uh, says. I think this is Douglas Kelly, uh, who's got a very interesting and brilliant commentary on Revelation. Christ is the final and ultimate high priest whom all the earlier ones imperfectly but truly represented. Christ is the great high priest who gets us through to the blessed throne of the Father. As we see uh, upon the earthquake that occurred in the death uh, of Jesus at Calvary, the veil of the temple uh, was rent in twain and we now have free access into the holiest of all. 
uh, in our reading from Leviticus, only once a year, uh, the priest, having sacrificed uh, for himself and for the sins of his house, and then having sacrificed for the sins of the people, he was able to enter through the veil into that Holy of Holies. And then he had to sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. God was teaching him and the people without the shedding of blood. There can be no remission of sins. But all of that was symbolic because it wasn't adequate. Because the next year, the same had to be repeated again, year in, year out. After many decades, the high priest would die and would have to be replaced with another high priest. And so it never really dealt with our sin. It all pointed forward to Jesus Christ as our great high priest. And when he came, uh, when John the Baptist pointed to him and said, Behold, he's not just the high priest, he is the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when Jesus uh, was sacrificed on the cross, his blood was then sprinkled and the veil was torn in two from above, God doing it. And the way now is open into the throne room, into the control room of the universe. We saw last time Jesus Christ as king. Uh, it's not earthly rulers who are the most powerful. It is King Jesus who has uh, presidents and uh, kings and prime ministers in his hands. And this is the glorious thoughts for us in lockdown. We are not locked out of the throne room of the ruler of the whole universe. Imagine John on a rocky island, uh, 40 or so miles from his beloved flock. He alone could access spiritually the holiest of all. Something that only the high priest could do once a year in the old dispensation. Now, not just an apostle, but every believer can do. 24-7, 24-7. Uh, have you uh, ever uh, uh, had to uh, call um, an emergency number? Uh, maybe because of uh, a plumbing job that needs to be done. Uh, and uh, it takes time, doesn't it? Uh, we have to uh, wait. And uh, uh, with bigger companies, we are... Uh, directed uh, from uh, one person to the next. It's so laborious. But Jesus Christ gives us access directly to the Father, 24-7, free of charge, because he has paid the price. Listen to uh, the writer to the Hebrews. This is the best commentary on Leviticus. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Listen to this. Therefore, brethren, this isn't just for Pastors, not just for apostles. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest 
over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Do, do we realize that? That in Jesus Christ, we have a high priest that gives us this wonderful access into the very control room. And it doesn't matter how far away we are from the action. You may feel that you're out in the sticks. Oh no, it's being in Christ. That's the most important location. And in uh, the way that he's opened uh, the veil for us, we are in the centre, in the centre. Let, let me read this um, account. I found this account very helpful over the years. Uh, since I've mentioned the US president as one of the most powerful people in the world, imagine if you were able uh, to have access into the Oval Office. Well, this is better. This is even more of a privilege. Uh, the White House is protected by the Secret Service. Every road within a 300-yard radius is closed. A 10-feet-high gate circles the grounds. Snipers are posted on most roofs, and it is one of the only buildings in the whole world to have its very own paramilitary army protecting it. Not only this, but if we wanted to try and land a helicopter there or jump the gates, surface-to-air missile launchers stationed around the site would shoot you down if you were an unauthorised guest. Who, who can have access into the White House? Not, not just the Oval Office, the White House. One day, a little boy walked through the gates, smiled at the security guards, and carried on across the grass. As he walked, he saluted the army officers and skipped towards the west wing doors. That's where the Oval Office is. When he reached the door, he knocked, then flung open the doors impatiently. Running straight past the registration desk, he began to quicken his pace towards the president's private office. He went past guard after guard after guard until he reached the door to the president of the United States main office. Outside stood two guards, six feet four inches of muscle and gun with sunglasses to match. They looked at the boy, the boy looked back. In a hurry, with no time to waste, he pushed open the doors and there before him stood the President of the United States, John F. Kennedy. The President looked up from his desk and said, Son, where have you been? I've been looking forward to seeing you. We are adopted sons to the Father. Jesus Christ is our older brother. And you know what? Our Father says, Son, where have you been? H haven't we been neglecting coming into this office, this uh, oval office of the universe? I want to hear you. I want to see you. That's what God is saying. Uh, some of us were challenged these last few days uh, on uh, the lack of yearning that we have uh, for revival. Oh, isn't that why 
the land is in the mess that it's in. It's because the church isn't what she should be. Oh, our Father yearns to hear you uh, cry, even if that's all it is. And then to think, when we forget to pray, Jesus as our high priest is interceding. He's interceding for us 24-7. Over the years, we've had some elderly folk who are real prayer warriors. Uh, They have gone to glory now. And part of me uh, would always feel their loss. And yet, thinking about it, even without these prayer warriors on earth, haven't we got the prayer warrior in glory? Jesus Christ. My name is graven in his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No lockdown will ever stop us as long as he is alive and he is and will be forevermore we are also alive Uh, one of uh, the greatest events in the history of scotland john knox um, i don't know if a statue of his would be pulled down there's a statue in geneva i'm not sure if there's one in scotland but he was the great Protestant reformer in Scotland. And somebody said the greatest events in the history of the Scottish Reformation was John Knox, this powerful politician and preacher. But that wasn't the most powerful events, but John Knox going into his room and praying. We can be at the centre of everything if only we availed ourselves more of coming into the presence of Almighty God. Uh, This is what McLaren says, the heart that beats beneath the golden girdle is the same that melted with pity and overflowed with love at the cross. And it's the same heart that is compassionate to you and me now jesus hasn't changed so that that, that's uh the second office that john here sees jesus as high priest can you see now we need no earthly priest we have everything in jesus christ and then let's look uh, at uh the third office that of prophets uh The prophets in the Old Testament was the one who brought God's word to the people. Thus saith the Lord. And Moses, he prophesied that one day a greater prophet would come. The prophets would come. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing how these three offices, king, priest and prophet, are combined in our Saviour. And uh, if you look at uh, the account in John, uh, I want to draw your attention uh, to verse 16, uh, maybe before that, the end of verse 15, his voice, 
as the sound of many waters. And then verse 16, we'll leave, he had in his right hand seven stars uh, till another time. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His voice, like the voice of rushing waters, and out of his mouth a two-edged sword. Both of those uh, are a reference to the word of God, the word of Christ. It's symbolic language. Uh, John was uh, on this island and it had a, a rocky shoreline uh, and he could hear the crashing of the waves. And yet when he had this vision of the risen Savior and heard his voice, uh, that was even more powerful and overpowering uh, than the Mediterranean Sea crashing against the shore of Patmos. And uh, Ezekiel, uh, in a vision that he had, he said that his voice was like the noise of many waters. Uh, and then the sharp two-edged sword coming out of the mouth, that wasn't literal. It's a symbolic reference to the word of Christ as the sword of the spirits. Have you ever thought of that? Uh, we've been looking at it in the Bible study uh, in Judges recently. Uh, the, the word of God is our only weapon as Christians. We don't fight the enemy uh, with uh, physical uh, weapons. Uh, we're not into uh, destroying people. It's the word that we use. Uh, in Ephesians 6, uh, the word is described as the sword of the spirits. And in uh, that chapter, you have the armor that God has provided for the Christian. And all the items are defensive apart from one, uh, the sword of the spirits, the word. That's the only offensive uh, item that we have. Uh, you know, this is why uh, once we get back into the church, uh, uh, our church is built around the pulpits with an open Bible. That's what we are about. The word. Without the word, we haven't got anything. The word, when the word is watered down and when the word is lost, there is no church. Now, the word is the sword of the spirits. Uh, Hebrews 4. I know I'm giving you many verses tonight, but I am meant to be teaching. <laughs> Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the hearts, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do the word. It was hearing this word that made us alive. We heard this morning about being made spiritually alive. How did that happen to you? It was coming in touch with the word, whether it was the preached word, the read word, 
the word spoken in conversation, uh, the word on a tract. God uses his word. The spirits uses the word. Um, I had the privilege a few years ago of preaching for Douglas Kelly in uh, his church in South Carolina uh, in a little place called Reedy Creek. Now that's a good name, isn't it? Reedy Creek Presbyterian Church. And uh, he uh, spoke of um, a, an old um, pastor in Carolina who used to say this, uh, that the sword of the Spirit uh, is the only sword that you can stick into a dead man <laughs> and he becomes a living man. That's a bit quaint, but that's good, isn't it? The sword of the spirit is the only sword you can stick into a dead man and he becomes a living man. When you think of physical weapons, they make living people dead, but this spiritual weapon makes dead people come to life. And, oh, th there is... Uh, a wounding with a sword, this two-edged sword. Uh, those verses in Hebrews spoke of conviction, uh, a discerner, not just of the outward, but of the inward, the intent of the hearts. Uh, oh, when God is at work, uh, people are divided under the preaching of the word. Aren't we preachers today too afraid? Uh, many preachers, they keep, the sword in the scabbard. They, they don't take it out. Uh, they may say platitudes about the word and about theology and about morality, but that's not using the sword. Other preachers, they manage to pull the sword out, but they use the flats of the sword. They don't want to offend anybody. But, oh, may I and may other preachers, may we learn to wield the sword uh, in the power of the spirits, winsomely, yes, lovingly, yes, but using the sharp of the sword. Oh, may the Holy Spirit divide when uh, the Apostle John and the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and the Apostle James preached uh, the word. People were divided into two groups. Either people were offended by it or people were convicted and converted and embraced the saviour. Uh, I've been reading recently about the move of the spirit in Wales in the 50s and the 60s and the gospel, the word, it, it caused offence as well as people being saved. Where's the stigma gone, my friends? If this word is the sword of the spirits, where's the wounding? Aren't we too healthy? Aren't we too superficial and isn't it the word used by the spirit that we need today uh, our country's in a mess and the church is in a mess and people are trying all sorts of things to improve the situation uh, during this lockdown it's useful to read some weighty tones and if you've never read Arnold Dalimo's two uh, volumes on George Whitsfield you you really need uh, to, to read. They're excellent historically as well as spiritually. And when you read of uh, this country at the start of the 18th century, there was a revolution in France and people were afraid that it would come to this country. 
the immorality. One bishop to, uh, uh, taught that there was a torrent of impiety. Uh, there was the gin craze. It was much, much worse than today. And uh, the government was trying to punish people by uh, bringing hangings for all sorts of smaller crimes. And instead of improving the country, it made things worse. Let, let me read what Dalimo says. How was this torrent of impiety to be stopped? It was evident that the writing of scholarly books in defense of Christianity would not suffice, for it had been tried, but with little avail. Butler wrote his uh, analogy. Nor would the threat of punishment for the informing on wrongdoers and the increase of hangings uh, uh, have any effect. Uh, this torrent of impiety would keep on flowing until some power was found that could staunch it at its source. Now that's what we need. We need power. We, we, we need uh, the roots to be dealt with. During the very months in which the bishop wrote uh, those foreboding words about the torrent of impiety, England was startled by what? By the sound of a voice. It was the voice of a preacher, George Whitfield, only 22 years old, and he was preaching the gospel in the pulpits of London with such fervour and power that no church would hold the multitudes that flocked to hear. His voice continued to be heard and then was joined by the voices of John and Charles Wesley and of many others in a tremendous chorus of praise and preaching that rang throughout the land. The voice of Jesus using those men, the voice of rushing waters, a religious revival burst forth which changed in a few years the whole temper of society. The church was revived. Uh, there was a moral zeal uh, and literature uh, and uh, actions were purified and uh, prisons were reformed and uh, slavery was abolished. It was uh, Christianity and it was a move of the spirits, uh, awakening a moribund church uh, by the preaching of the gospel. That's what got rid of slavery. Oh, my friends, we need Jesus Christ again to speak powerfully in his word, to bring life into this spiritually uh, moribund situation we're in. And then it's the same word. It's the same word uh, that sanctifies us. What is sanctification? Uh, what is holiness? Uh, we tend to think, don't we, of holiness as not doing certain things and doing certain other things. Well, there's an element of truth in that. But the heart of holiness is this, to be like God, be holy, for I am holy. Or to put it in human terms, it's to be Christ-like. And what this word does as we not just study it, but as we meditate upon it and as it changes us through the spirits, as we become willing cooperators with the spirits, is that we are changed into the same image as the author, Jesus Christ. Lord, lead me to the truth as it is in Jesus. Jesus is the prophet that speaks to us in his word concerning himself. He prayed in his great high priestly prayer, sanctify them by thy word, thy word 
is truth. But thinking again of the word as a sword. When was the last time, Christian, you were convicted by the word? I know we can have a conviction of sin before we are saved. But conviction of sin happens throughout our Christian life. Just as we repent and believe when we come to Jesus Christ, it's not the end of it then. It's the beginning. Our whole Christian life is one of repentance and faith. Our whole Christian life is one of being convict me of my sin and then lead to Jesus' blood. How come Jesus... Uh, becomes more precious as we get older. It's because we are more aware of our failings. Maybe our sins are not as spectacular or as obvious as before we were saved, but they're more deeply ingrained, and we sin against privilege, and we're so amazed, aren't we, that he should love me and give himself for me, a wretch like me. John Elias, I mentioned him this morning. Some say he was the most powerful preacher Wales ever produced. I read an account many years ago, and I can't remember where it happened, but Henry Rees, uh, the next generation, was preaching. So he was a young man. Elias was an older man. And Elias was in the congregation. Imagine that, having this great preacher in the congregation, and you're a young man preaching. And the spirits came upon Henry Rees as he preached and convicted the people, and these were Christians now, and John Elias was biting his lip because he was so convicted of his own sin. Oh, we're so prone, aren't we, to point the finger at other people, at people who are outside the church, and we forget that we need to be convicted. A great awakening happened in Romania. I think it was in the late 70s, early 80s, and it happened during a sermon. Uh, in Romania, they call Christians repentant ones. And this sermon was so powerful, it was about the repentance of the repentant ones. Isn't that what we need? The repentance of the repentant ones. Uh, here's a hymn. Uh, I've only discovered it recently. It's light. Talking about the word. It's light descending from above. Our gloomy works to cheer displays a saviour's boundless love and brings his glories near. When once it penetrates the mind, it conquers every sin. The enlightened soul begins to find the path of peace divine. Don't you find that? It's like having a cold bath, isn't it? It's uncomfortable, but oh, it does us good. It sweetly cheers our drooping hearts in this dark veil of tears, life, light, and joy, it still imparts and quells our rising fears. This lamp through all the tedious nights of life shall guide our way till we behold the clearer lights of an eternal day. Praise God, we've got a lamp to lighten our dark path, a lamp that shows our sin, but more than that, for every look at our sin, we should give 10 looks to the Saviour hanging on that cross. And then one last thing about Jesus' prophets and his words. John was in lockdown. 
he was exiled. <laughs> and was he worrying? God has called me to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. What's happening? I've had my pulpit closed to me. I've been banished. What's going to happen to my congregation? The Apostle Paul, who was dead at this point, but the Apostle Paul, he was imprisoned, his final imprisonment in Rome. And the Apostle of the Gentiles, whom God had chosen to take the gospel to the then Roman world. What was he doing? He was in chains. He, he was in a, a, a bigger lockdown than we are. And do you know what he wrote? The word of God is not bound. Praise God. The word of God is not bound. And you know what, my friend? Even though we can't meet, even though we can't physically preach, the word of God is not bound. This word can go out. Let me just give you a few examples and then... I will finish, I promise. How did the early church grow? There's a quote which tells us how the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The authorities thought that by killing these uh, Christians, it would be the end of the story. Actually, the more they persecuted them, the more the gospel spread. That's God's way. Dying to live. That's God's method. Uh, Owen Batstone uh, spoke on this a few months ago uh, in our church, and he referred to uh, the revival in Korea. Uh, let, let me give you the more famous example of what happened in China uh, under Chairman Mao. The missionaries that were in China, the Western missionaries, were thrown out uh, when they left China. They were worried about the church that they left behind. There were thousands of Christians. Decades later, when they were allowed back in, they were shocked, well, surprised, because instead of thousands, there were millions. The word isn't bound. The church had exploded in a time of persecution. God doesn't need us Western pastors and missionaries to build his church in other parts of the world. The word of God isn't bound. Martin Luther, after making his great stand in Worms, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. Instead of going back to the front line, to Wittenberg, to fight against uh, the enemy. He went into exile. He hid for a year uh, in the Wartburg castle. And you know, God still moved, even without Luther. And Luther put it beautifully, didn't he? He said, the word did it all. Me and Philip, Philip Melanchthon, we didn't do anything. He mentioned something about sitting around drinking a certain beverage. God did it all. The word did it all. I, I could give example after example. The, the preaching of Whitfield and Wesley 
uh, it so disturbed some of the religious people. They locked their churches to those men. And they probably thought that that would bring an end to it, but it actually had the reverse effect. Uh, the more you try to put it down, the word of God, the more it will bounce back. And when they were locked out of church buildings, they simply went into the open air. It hadn't been done before, but in the open air, oh, the word had free cause. Thousands of people in uh, Moorfields and in uh, other places, Kingswood, Bristol, heard the gospel. Now, I've got to be careful. I'm uh, getting worked up here with all these examples. But praise God for the lockdown. Have you done that? That our king is using it to fulfill his purpose in spreading the word. Uh, I've heard that more people are listening uh, online to the gospel than ever go to church. Praise God for that. And as Tony said in the announcements, when we do come back, may we, like those missionaries from the West returning to China, may we not just be surprised, but may we be overwhelmed at how many people were born again through the word. Oh, may God move amongst us. May we, in our isolation, have such a new vision of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, for his name's sake. Now we're going to close this evening's service by singing together, uh, Onward March, All Conquering Jesus. Uh, this uses the language we've been looking at tonight. Gird thee on thy mighty sword, that word. Bolts be drawn, forth like.
from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 